<laughs> Scarlet Letter. It's a short novel. It's not a long novel. Um, and let me warn you in advance, the opening is what's called the Custom House. It's almost like a, a news reporter describing what's going on in mid-19th century New England. Um, it, some people just get bored by it. They, you know, they want to read past it. Do not do that. It, it's absolutely crucial to read that well because you won't understand the strange things that happen in what's about to follow it if you don't read that well. So even if it seems a little bit boring, take it seriously. It's, it's, what he's doing is amazing. Anyway, um, I think you'll be amazed. I think you'll be, and you're going to learn a lot about life and a lot about literature just from what he does in the Custom House. Um, and let me give a hint on that, just a, um, a clue of what's going on. He's going to make very clear the difference between classical literature and what in his mind would have been called a romance. Because a romance would have dealt with strange things that are beyond the scope of science. So for example, when he goes into the Custom House office and finds this red letter, he puts it on his chest and he has a burning sensation. It actually burns him and it falls to the ground. Who's going to believe that? And he says it was true. That's a sort of introduction to that romantic element that's going to be a part of the, the story of the Scarlet Letter. So you've got the Custom House, which seems very prosaic and newsy, and this amazing story that took place in our founding. So what Hawthorne's doing is what the epic poets did, what all of you know because of your reading it. He's re-founding America. He's going back to the, our critical Puritan beginnings and bringing something new to it. So it's, it's, it's a remarkable story. Okay. So, anyway, Anthony Cleopatra and then Scarlet Letter. Um, we can order Scarlet Letter. I'd rather you guys order. Um, it, or do, no, we did. We're going to order. We're going to order a few. We're going to order maybe 20 <coughs> copies. We're going to use the Barnes & Noble because it's really inexpensive. If you're okay, we'll get them. and we, we'll, we'll bring them next week, okay? Okay. okay. Let's start. Are they undone? Yes. Did you start? Yes. Um, any prayer request? Any prayer request? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life, for the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning, for your words. Um, you called the disciples out, um, chose them, even Judas. Um, they didn't choose you, you chose them. Um, there's a choosing in our work together somehow. I, I deeply believe we're here as a part of our call that you are behind it, the work that we've been doing. Strengthen us in our efforts, please. Um, um, help us um, clear our sight, our eyes, so that we see more deeply into the reality before us. Open our hearts. Take away the blindness. Um, heal us, um, even when it means um, when we open our hearts to be vulnerable to wounds. Strengthen us for whatever it is you're asking us to do. Um, I ask a blessing on all that we do going forward. Um, Bob and Marcy aren't here. I know they're struggling. Um, watch over both of them, particularly Bob. Um, and he faces some really, may face some um, serious issues in his health. 
and be with them and, um, and um, answer all the prayers and anybody here tonight who's carrying some burden. Um, in everything we do, help us um, to live um, knowing that we're in your kingdom. That's where you invite us to make that kingdom real for each other um, in um, whatever we do in the world, um, particularly where we face opposition. Give us the strength to do that, all of us. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Can you pull up the May Magnificat? Since we were doing Helen, I thought it would be appropriate to do Mary because I've been talking a little bit about her. <coughs> We've given you two, two poems, the, the Blessed Virgin compared to the Air Breed. It's a little bit longer than I wanted to take tonight, so I'm, I'm choosing to do the, Mary, the May Magnificat. But read the other one. They're both about Mary. Um, I hope you'll enjoy them. This is Hopkins, the May Magnificat. May is Mary's month, and I muse at that and wonder why. Her feasts follow reason, dated due to season. Candlemas, Lady Day, but the lay month, May, why fasten that upon her with a feasting in her honor? Is it only its being brighter than the most our most delight her? Is it opportunist and flowers finds soonest? Ask of her, the mighty mother, her reply puts this other question. What is spring, growth in everything? Flesh and fleece, fur and feather, grass and green world all together. Star-eyed strawberry breasted, brussel above her nested, cluster of bugle blue eggs, thin forms and warms the life within. And burden blossoms swell in sod or sheath or shell. All things rising, all things sizing, Mary sees, sympathizing. With that world of good, nature's motherhood. They're magnifying of each its kind, with delight calls to mind, how she did in her stored magnify the Lord. Well, but there was more than this. Spring's universal bliss, much had much to say to offering Mary May. When drops of blood and foam dapple, bloom lights the orchard, orchard apple, and thicket and thorp are merry with silver surfed cherry, and azuring over gray bell makes wood banks and breaks wash wet like lakes and magic, cuckoo call, caps, clears, and clinches all. This ecstasy all through mothering earth tells Mary her mirth to Christ's birth remember and exultation in God who was for salvation. It's a celebration, an affirmation of everything that's life-giving in nature. Um, the obvious analogy here is that um, Christ was the creator, um, he's the maker of all things. It was through Mary that Christ came to us, so um, it's through her that um, the, the, the fall, you know, our, our our fall into death and sin was answered. One of the one of the reasons that just to underscore, we've been saying that I've been talking about Helena in, in um, veins like these is um, that um, woman is the means of bringing 
creation into the world. I've, I've been stressing that the last few weeks. And we live in a world that is so negative. The Protestant world, looks, by and large, looks at um, creation as depraved. We lost our free will. The, the effects of the fall were dark. Um, we don't believe that. And we believe that the, the goodness is still there, even if it's injured or wounded. But Mary's a reminder of this fundamental goodness in creation. Um, it's, it, it's not to be maligned or darkened or there is this wonderful good um, um, and particularly in spring when things come back to life. And remember Chaucer's opening lines were you know when April comes and spring is here it's time for pilgrimages and good things so okay I want to get to Othello, and I've been warned. <laughs> um, very, very quickly. Um, just I want to touch on um, All's Well and Portia, because both of them have these remarkable women. Um, um, we, we have got to carry this. Mm -hmm. and carry forward the work that we began with Chaucer. Remember the term bonum est diffusium. It, it's strict Boethius, Boethius, God, or Plato. Goodness is diffusive everywhere in creation. Our belief is not that everything's depraved, that the fall was complete. It's, there's nothing negative that we begin with. We begin celebrating the goodness there. Bonum est diffusum. Shakespeare knew that. His, even his tragedies, in a sense, are, are a celebration of man because all the tragic heroes are good. They're noble men. And remember that tragedy doesn't show depravity, it shows a flaw that's overcome. Remember, the action in every tragedy it moves from prosperity to a fall. But every, in a good tragedy, this is Aristotle, in every good tragedy there's a peripatia turn an agnum, and an agnosis. You all remember these terms? Remember, here's the tragic action. Beginning, the complication, the climax, a denouement, a closure. Begins with um, prosperity and ends in a calamity, some fall. But every good tragedy, Aristotle says, has a turn, what he called a parapetia. And an anagnorisis. A turn and um, a recognition. Remember, Oedipus sees his fault. Um, um, so, what's important to remember here that. Um, every tragedy is an affirmation of some goodness in life. A balance is restored, it's recovered. So tragedies, even though there's a great cost, always at the end of tragedy, always, um, the, the tragic hero recovers a balance. Some evil has been answered, and <coughs> conditions have been laid for a new, for a recovery of a good regime, whatever the tragedy is. So tragedy always affirms a goodness in nature. Something's recovering, Something, some goodness is being recovered. 
an evil is being answered, <clears throat> an injustice is being answered as a preparation for a new, a new ground. Bonum est diffusum, is diffusive, or diffusium, goodness is diffusive. He also believed, he would have known, that in, I believe Shakespeare was Catholic, um, that every human being is made in the image of God. So one of the things that's reaffirmed in Helena is the goodness of virginity. We talked about that, that, that whole opening talk on virginity and the fact that she um, takes on herself Bertram's sins. That's absolutely Christ-like. It's, it's exactly what Christ did. Um, it's exactly what Porsche, or I mean uh, Beatrice did with Dante. Dante's damned at the beginning of the Commedia. So we're watching these women bring this um, extraordinary love to what they do, and Shakespeare's celebrating it here, and in, at least in All's Well, he's connecting with virginity because he makes clear from her words that that wholeness of love that she brings to Bertrand, remember she said, not my virginity yet, in, him, in me he will find, and then she lists everything, an enemy, a captain, a soldier, a, um, he'll find everything in her. And the, the, what he's showing us is that there is this wholeness, that whole love is possible before the actual sexual act takes place. And he associates that with a woman. You can't find that in the men. The two men in the story who, who put that in perspective is Paroles, who says, get rid of your virginity, it's worth nothing. No life comes into the world until you do, so he's cynical and degrading. And, and the clown who says he's going to save himself by marrying. He doesn't want to marry because marriage is good. He's married because it's convenient. So you've got two extremes. And both of them imply a lust. And we see that lust worked out in the end of the play when all the soldiers are apparently going off to women. Bertram's going to meet, he thinks, with Diana and have sex. So one of the underlying causes of the, of the decay in this world that's not explored, but it's there, is lust. Um, and the answer to that is marriage. It's the wholeness of love that um, Helena brings to what she does, and it's because that love is so complete that she follows him to Florence and then comes back, and, um, and he's unmasked, and the marriage takes place, and the rigid class lines are softened some. So she's introducing into this French aristocracy a more human element. Because remember, there's something inhuman in aristocracy. It believes that because of a person's birth, he's better than other people. And we saw at the beginning of the play that privilege is incestuous. It gets ingrown. The people within this class to, tend to identify with this class and look down on other people. She went, to, she went to Italy, Rome, the beginnings of the Renaissance, and she comes back and brings something new. So, um, like Portia, but in a very, very different way, she's the means, this is, this is sort of stunning, she's the means of renewing a life. The, the, we know from the beginning the court's in decay, king's dying, the lords have been dying, she's bringing a principle of revitalization, new life. So she's an extraordinarily, um, extraordinary figure. Portia, in a very different, remember, just don't forget here, the, the Plato's cake. Remember Plato's cave. We've gone through it too many times for me to have to go through again. But just remember that the, the cave is different 
according to the regime. So we're still in the cave um, in uh, All's Well, but it just happens to be a French aristocracy. But it's, it's so clear that Shakespeare's unmasking it, what he does with Parolis, with Bertram, the Lords, you know, all of those things. So we see the cave in the light of an aristocracy, in terms of an aristocracy. In Merchant of Venice, we're seeing the cave in terms of the modern commercial regime. This is more republican, it's more democratic, it's not aristocratic. This is, remember, this is the beginnings of the modern world as we know it. Um, it's, it's our own regime. So in both of those plays, Shakespeare's on the verge of modernity. Remember, he lives in an aristocracy under Elizabeth. And he, and he, 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 I mean, he lived just after the War of the Roses, the great fights between the dynastic classes in England. Um, when Henry takes power, he's, he's imposing what is basically a totalitarian power on England. Everybody has to follow what he does or they're going to be executed. So Shakespeare's looking, he's living in England, an aristocracy, he's aware of the aristocracy in France. When he writes All's Well, he's dealing with the decaying features of an aristocracy and showing a woman bringing something new in it. In Portia, he's doing the same thing, but in a different city. Now we're looking at the, the prototype of the, the modern commercial regime. And you remember from what we did with it that, that Venice is the sterile city. It's where money breeds. That's what Shylock wants. Um, there are no families, no marriages. Well, there are families, but they don't know. Gobo doesn't know Lancelot. The father doesn't know his son. And there's no friends. Everybody's too business, too busy with words. Remember the opening when it begins with Antonio says, I know not why I'm so sad. Remember, he, he can't. He can't fathom. He doesn't know. But we, we immediately see in that opening scene is his two friends say, we know why you're sad. If we had ships at sea, we'd be sad too. They completely misread him. They're just projecting on him their own concerns. And there's that passage, I think I read, didn't I read these last week, where he says, if I were in church and looked at the altar stone, didn't yeah, I read that? Yeah. I mean, it's a giveaway. And as soon as Bassanio comes, Solaire and Solano will leave. And we know why, because they, they've got business to attend to. So this is, and remember, they were all going to plan for a party that night, but the wind comes up and the party's canceled. So we're in a world at the mercy of chance. Whatever happens, they cannot, they cannot risk losing money. They're too preoccupied with success and money, and it's hurting relationships everywhere, family, friends, marriages. Into that world comes Portia, and she's the one that makes it possible to resolve that problem. Without her, the commercial regime goes down. We've gone through this, right? We did it last week. If um, Shylock has his bond, the commercial regime dies, because it's, it's um, harsh, way, way too harsh. If the Christians get their way and they let him off, the commercial regime's gone, because who's going to enter into a contract? So in either way, the contracts, the, the commercial regime is at risk. She's the only one who can avoid those extremes and bring a justice to the law and still hold on to the bond. And she does it by reconciling mercy, law, justice, and mercy. And my argument is that in doing that, she's exactly like Christ because that's what he did on the cross. That's her own trial. That's her own. All the men are in trial. That's her trial. 
And remember, there's a way in which she's prepared for that because of her education at Belmont, and particularly, I think, because of her obedience to her father. Okay? So Portia's this remarkable woman, like Mary, once again, um, it's a woman who holds herself obedient um, because of her obedience that these amazing powers work through her. Okay? Um, Helena held to her vows. She would not break them, even though Bertram runs away. Um, Portia will not break. She, she shows that in the first two ordeals with Morocco and Aragon. Um, she's very gracious and she makes it clear that if they choose correctly, she's marrying them, even if she doesn't want to marry them. So tell me how much courage that woman's got. She, she is completely selfless. She gives herself up. So the qualities that these women possess that makes them so remarkable is their selflessness. The capacity to love completely in the way that Christ did. The men, not close, not close. So remember that, that as we've been looking at it, if this is the city, if this is Venice here, these women belong to a world of the family, of marriages, of love. They're not, they're not formed by the dynamisms, the mechanics of this world. So they tend, they tend not to get up, caught up with pride and power and competition and envy and all the things that we've been watching in the world since Dante and Shakespeare too. The men are given to it. Uh, and it's where all the injustices take place. So um, they enter this world and bring something to it that this world can't get. Um, and that's what's making it so remarkable. Um, one of the things that I just wanted to underscore here, particularly in connection with Helena's virginity, is um, um, because remember there's that line where she gets to make her choice and she says, now I fly from the goddess Diana, the virgin goddess, to the imperial lord. We don't know who that is. I mean, it's, presumably it's Christ or God. but um, And she's going to marry She's, you know, she's going she's gonna to give up her virginity when she consummates that marriage. In fact, she did consummate it, remember, because she took Diana's place. So she does consummate the marriage. Um, one of the amazing things I think Shakespeare's showing us is the wholeness of this love of a woman that's associated with virginity that she brings to her marriage. Um, and I think the, the ultimate source of that is Mary. The, she's the one at the center of the Catholic Church who brings Christ to us. That's why she's called the disciple of the disciples. She's an example of absolute selfless love. She didn't say um, to Gabriel, I want to know what you're going to ask of me first. She said yes. She didn't want reasons. She didn't want conditions. She didn't know what she was in for. Her son's going to die. There's no way she could have known that. She gave herself completely and took on in obedience whatever followed that. Um, the, the, one of the interesting conclusions for me about all of this is that, is that um, there is behind all of this work in Shakespeare this belief in this inherent goodness in, in humans. We see it particularly realized in almost a perfect form in these women. They're really extraordinary creatures. Um, 
when I think about what women are faced today when they're given the option of having a child or not, how many women today think of the child that they might bear or the child they're carrying in their womb as an image of God? The anima naturality of Christianity. That C.S. Lewis was in, you know, from um, Two We Have Faces. Who today thinks like that? That a child is an image of God? Shutting out, cuts God out. Making a place for him brings God into the world. That is just not the way we think. That's not the way Shakespeare, Chaucer, you know, a Christian world thought. So we are on that edge where human life is slowly being degraded. Um, now, bring this to Othello. Um, uh, wait, before we, before we, we leave, I want to just remember, um, Suzanne came across an article the other day um, in which he was given, I can't remember the facts of it, Doc, help me out here, but it was um, Catholic-related and was saying something like, I don't know, remember, it was 30, 40% of Catholics no longer believe in the real presence of Christ. You know, the practice, they, people just take it for granted and take communion, who think? But there were other disorders, and I, and I can't remember them, but I want, before we leave Venice, or Merchant Venice, I want to just um, plant this seed. Remember those lines that I read when we did the opening of, of Merchant, where Shylock says, when the, the contract is being made for the, for the loan, and the collateral is a bond of pound of flesh, and Antonio said he's willing to do it, and Bassanio says, I don't want you to do that, and Shylock says, you know, what's the worth of this? It's, I mean, it's such an innocent-seeming scene. But he says, what's the worth of a pound of flesh? Mutton's beef or goat, you can't get any, remember that? I read that, I hope, didn't I? And it's, it's, you can pass that line and not give a thought about it, except it's so revealing of the commercial regime. If everything's measured by money, what's the worth of a pound of flesh? That's the implication of that line. In the modern world, we, had, we have just so degraded the human body in so many ways. John Paul's theology of the body, to me, was a Christ-like miracle in our time. So we're on, we're on the verge of the modern world. Shakespeare is affirming virginity. Indirectly, he's affirming, not direct, affirming marriage and its importance as a rule of stability in civilization. And it's just interesting to see that the women are the ones who are making this real, okay? Now, so we're gonna leave the comic aspect of Venice and go to the tragic. So we're in the cave again, we're in Plato's cave. This is Venice, but now it's Venice under the aspect of a tragedy. Remember in Merchant of Venice, what ruled in Venice was chance. It was a commercial regime, you had to risk, you didn't have a blueprint of what was gonna go on. And Belmont was the place that they went to after uh, Portia settled the, the trial. And remember that Belmont is a place that's enveloped by what's called the music of the spheres, this amazing harmony and beauty. It, so that the, the orientation of Belmont to the cosmos or the universe or God's kingdom is order, beauty, beauty truth, philosophy, art. It's because she was raised there that she has the ability to come here to settle that, because clearly nobody in Venice could. 
In Othello, the two regimes are not just Venice and Belmont now, it's Venice and Cyprus. Yeah. And it's at Cyprus that we're, we're confronted with what's beneath, hidden beneath the Venetian regime. The, we can call it the chthonic, the dark hidden forces, the irrational, the unconscious, the dark, the Freudian unconscious. And I want to, I want to make this, remember that for Freud, the unconscious was um, animal, biological. He had no notion, none at all, of the spiritual unconscious. That was outside the range of his thinking. So if we, if we think about it as the unconscious, it's got to be the dark unconscious. It's where evil secretly works, it's where Iago does his work. So um, what I want to do is do two things tonight. Um, I want to look at poetry and then I want to look through some readings and I'm going to ask this question. Fred, pick me up here if you can, if, if it doesn't connect somewhere. I don't remember the questions that I left you with last time, but I, I know the, the, mo the questions foremost on my mind were, why are the men so light? Because I, didn't I read the passages where she's in courtroom and the men say, I'll be, if, if, I'll, I, I'd rather give up my life and the life of my wife and everything to save your life to Antonio, remember? And Portia says, your wife would not be glad if she were by to hear that. Didn't I read those passages? Yeah. Then Bassanio does the same thing where he says, I'd, I'd be willing to sacrifice my life and my wife too. God. <laughs> God. They seem so captive. Here they are. It's like Bertrand <coughs> Paroli's. These men present themselves as being these cavalier heroes. Look what I'm going to do for you when they're giving up their wives. And the wives are going, hold on here. Did you ask her? Um, so there's this cavalier lightness to men in Venice. So that's not a small question for me. What's, because that, that, you know, remember, it begins with Antonio says, I know not why I'm so sad. And the men try to explain it with these financial reasons. They're missing something. That's an existential question. There's nothing in their thinking that can get to it. What is it about this regime that encourages men to be so light that seems to increase the, the burden of the women? What do you mean by light? Um, I don't understand what you're... Superficial? Weak. Superficial. Weak. Superficial, naive. They take too much for granted. They don't... They, there, there's a lack of gravity they, they, in, the, in the play that we have, the men... Remember, so let me go back to the point I was making. It begins with Antonio says, I, I know not why I'm so sad, I, you know. Um, and the men try to explain it away. Um, there's, there's, there's something wrong at the opening, and we see that people are, are not connecting. That's the theme in literature constantly. You know, people go through the motions of connecting, but something's wrong here in the city. People are too preoccupied with business. And um, where's it going? Um, and we learn in the opening exchange that Bassanio has already borrowed money from Antonio. It, it makes it clear. He said, "I shoot." Remember when he says, "I shoot the arrow to find out where I lost it the first time," and Antonio is only too willing to do it again. He's a good man. I mean, he's a friend. He won't charge usury. He, he, he's the kind of person who would, I mean, the terms is what, I've got your back, or mm -hmm. 
Whatever happens to Bassanio, Antonio will be there for him. He's that kind of person. And he's the one whose life is at risk. So there's something very there's something about the Venetian regime, the modern commercial regime, that seems to encourage this lightness and increase the burden of women. So I just wanted to throw that out. I don't want to answer it now. In Othello, because I want to really, because I, I want you to put the two together for it. Good. Can we get a picture of that, I please? I why you were looking at me when you say that. Um, in Othello, um, the woman's life is put at risk, not directly. Iago wants to go after Othello and Cassio. But the one who's most affected is Desdemona. She's going to be murdered. She's going to be killed. Um, so the overarching question for me about Othello takes me back to Venice again, except now we're looking at it under the tragic aspect. What is it about Venice that seems to give evil such an opening? Because there's nobody in that regime, nobody, Iago doesn't manipulate. So we're getting a lightness of the men, this, this, this sense that they know everything, they're arrogant, they take things for granted. And in Othello, this kind of innocence, that they're oblivious to what's going on and the ultimate effect of it will be Desdemona's death. So Shakespeare's, it's the only, the only regime No, sorry, Greece. Time of Athens and um, Midsummer Night's Dream. It's the only regime in the modern world in which Shakespeare shows us both the comic and tragic aspects. So those are the overarching questions. What is it about Venice that gives this guy so much power to work harm? Okay, it's pervasive. There isn't anybody he doesn't touch. Now one last thing, and then I want to look at poetry and this Venice, okay? Remember, before we go there, that in the ancient world, in the ancient world, wisdom was always associated with, was always thought of as feminine wisdom. You go back to the Greek world, for those of you who started with all of this, you remember that Athena is the goddess of wisdom. And if you, can, if you put her in the pantheon with all the other gods and goddesses, she's the only, only god in that whole pantheon that's dual in nature. She's a warrior and she's wise and she's born out of Zeus's head. She's the only creature like that. So in the ancient world, <coughs> wisdom was looked at as feminine and in the plays that we've been looking at, it seems to me the source of them is Mary. Nothing, and by the way, I want to make this really clear because I want to be careful. I, um, I, I think you all have been with me long enough to know how wary. I am not going to make a jump to Christian sources here. Because I don't want to make a claim that will take away the play. Because sometimes Christians will allegorize something and say, it's Mary. It's not Mary. It's Helena. You know, we can't make that jump. If we do that, we're just opening ourselves to a secular critic saying, prove it. It's not there in the text. It's not there in the text. We're making a jump here, so I want to be really careful. The, the connection I'm making is with virginity. That is so specific to Helena and her powers that we have to ask why, what's going on with that. So, um, feminine is always 
in the ancient world looked at as feminine was for Socrates, was for Homer, was for almost all the great um, classical thinkers. Let me just offer this thought and then I want to turn to these two topics in Othello. Um, I think the reason it's always associated with something feminine is because in a world in which men nominate, um, um, power, success, um, is associated with force. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Iliad, I mean, you can go everywhere and find it. When you're in a world in which people are preoccupied with power or force, um, wisdom is always threatened. It's seen as vulnerable. It's susceptible to being destroyed, walked over, destroyed. Think about wars and what wars do. I mean, the power that gets unleashed with wars. Um, now, one of my reasons for bringing this up right now is because we're going to enter a tragic world. Is that clear? That there's, there's this vulnerability to wisdom because it's, it's ignored or, or trashed in a world given to power. Where people are attracted to power and status and image, all the things that Boethius talked about. Wisdom is, ah, there it is. Um, it's Constellation of Philosophy. Lady Philosophy, wisdom comes to him and answers all these questions and largely power, reputation, wealth, you know, all the things that the world loves. She's coming in to help him recover what he lost. One of my reasons for mentioning this right now is because we're going to enter a tragic world and there are lots of critics who take this position. The tragedy is a comedy actually with the presence of, with the absence of a wise man. And let me repeat that because it's, because I want to argue against that. Some people take the position that a tragedy is a comedy without a wise person. That it's only because of the presence of somebody wise like Portia or Helena, that a possible tragedy is averted, like the death of Anthony. I don't think that's so. Let me tell you why. Because Shakespeare, I, I think one of the problems with the modern world is that we've lost a tragic sense of things. We, we, we live in a world that has, um, has put that beyond us, and I think that's a loss for us. If we, if we lose a sense of tragedy, we're losing a dimension of our own lives. Um, I think Shakespeare had enough courage to do all the tragedies that he did. Hamlet, Macbeth, Othello, Lear, Anthony and Cleopatra, and you can go on. Because he saw that we can't always be safe from evil. It's not because people aren't good, it's that um, because evil's going to work in the world and it can't always be stopped. Um, we, we I mean, I believe, I think we believe, anybody who takes Boethius serious, that the is that God will always bring something out of it. That's what, ha that's what I started with that definition. Tragedy always show shows the recovery, the restoration of an order. So some good will be brought out of it. But there's off we live in a fallen world. Evil's at work. Um, and there are times when we don't see it, and it has awful consequences. We all know that. We suffer from it. So I don't think it's the absence of a wise man, it's Shakespeare being honest and affirming that underneath whatever evil people experience, there's a goodness at work answering it. It's Boethius, that's Plato, that's Aristotle, that's Christ, it's 
Okay. So we're entering um, Venice now in its tragic form. How many of you here when we did Othello? Sorry, what? How many? Do you guys remember doing Othello? Yeah. Yeah. What was it, about a year and a half? No. Last that's fine? No. 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 I wish it was further back than that. I can't remember. Before the Protestant Catholic soul. So before Dante and Milton. Here, let's, here, can I? Before Dante and Milton. Here, can you all? I just don't know how much I'm, you know, going over stuff that is, but anyway. Act 1, scene 3. This is after, I want to do two things right now. I want to take a minute with poetry. To, to, because you know that I've been making this claim that poetry is doing something that I think we should not lose because if we do, it, the consequences are dark for us. This is just after um, Rodrigo and, and Iago meet in the beginning of the play. I'll come back to that in a second. And Desdemona has eloped with Othello. Um, and he, take remember this. Um, um, this notion about elopement and fathers and daughters and the, the lost authority of fathers in this world because fathers have lost their authority. Um, um, Desdemona elopes. She's going to die. She's going to get killed. Um, here, after Brabantio confronts Othello, he brings him before these magistrates and, and is fully expecting a decision um, supporting his own. He doesn't want this marriage to go forward. Um, he has nothing but disdain for Othello. Where are you at? Act 1, scene 3, about line 75. So it looks like a, an imminent battle. Othello's there with the, the senators and guards, and Othello has just said this, because this is where I'm going to go. He's just said, this is about line 60, as men are about ready to draw their swords and they're going to have a fight. He says, Line 60, keep up your bright swords, for the dew will rest them. Good senor, you shall more command with years <coughs> than with your weapons. He has more respect for his age. The old man only has to ask, and Othello will oblige. This is the commander that this, oh, these Venetians want more than any because he's a great leader. The Turks are approaching Cyprus. It's a threat to their economy. They want this soldier to do, to protect them. I mean, that's the simple description of what's going on. So Brabantio is not going to get what he want. The Venetians want Othello. They need him as a warrior. So there's, in, there's this imminent battle and he says, keep up your bright swords for the dew will rust them. What's he saying? Just before we go on. Keep up your bright swords for the dew will rust them. Good senior, you show more command with years than with your weapons. He's saying you're not going to use them. The duel. This is it is extraordinary, and only on the, the where this is going is this. Only a poet could say this. He's a commander. This is a warrior. This is somebody from more. He is uneducated. He does not belong to this Venetian world. He's just come from a world in which he's a warrior. He has no no idea of what he's facing with Iago, who's a man of intellect. Iago's going to use his mind to manipulate everybody. Othello's coming from a warrior world in which actions matter. 
and he enters this Phoenician world. And the first thing he says here is, keep up your bright swords for the dew will rust them. I think it's a typical masculine virtue. It's a virtue of efficiency. He does not want to waste his men. He does not want to waste their swords. Put your swords away because they'll rust. But listen to the line. Keep up your bright swords for the dew will rust them. Now hold on to that. Um, he's confronted, and then Othello says, lying 75 or so, most potent, grave, and reverend seniors, my very noble and approved good masters, that I have taken away this old man's daughter. It is most true. True, I have married her. The very head in front of my offending has this extent no more. He's not done anything wrong. He's married. I mean, their accusations are right. He's married her. But he's done nothing wrong in his mind. Rude I am in my speech, and little blessed with the soft phrase of peace. He's uneducated. He can't, he can't use words the way these Venetians do because they're all educated. They're a product of this modern civilization. They're wealthy for the most part. Now, he's just said, I'm rude of speech. You remember that um, they leave Venice to go to Cyprus to protect the outpost because the Turks, the Ottomans, are on their way there to, to take it. So they pose a direct that threat to the economy of the well-being, because it's based on a economy, the well-being of Venice. Desdemona and, and Iago on one ship, Othello on another, um, they finally meet. She comes with Iago and then Othello comes afterwards and they meet. And this is what he says. This is Act 2, Scene 1, when he finally lands and the two are together after the storm separates them all. She says, oh my, she's Othello, oh my fair warrior, Desdemona, my dear Othello, Othello, it gives me wonder, great is my content to see you here before me, O oh, my soul's joy. If ever after tempest comes such calms, may the winds blow till they have wakened death. And let the laboring bark climb hills of seas, Olympus high, and duck again as low as hells from heaven. If it were now to die, it were now to be most happy. For I fear my soul hath her content so absolute that not another comfort like to this succeeds in a no fate. She says, the heavens forbid but that our loves and comfort should increase even as our days do grow. They've just gotten married. Um, they have everything to look forward to. Um, they see the life in front of them as nothing but promise. Othello, amen to that, sweet powers. I cannot speak enough of this content. It stops me here. It is too much of joy. And this and this, the greatest discords be. He kisses her a couple of times. When Cassio loses his position, this, this is all the machinations of Iago, he comes to um, press, he goes to Desdemona and asks for her support, and she goes to Othello. Um, and he, he says, um, I will deny thee nothing, sweet. He keeps talking about her in terms of heaven, that she's this radiant, extraordinary creature. Everybody sees her that way. Um, and then um, when Iago begins to insinuate that um, Desdemona and Iago, or Cassio have had this affair, I'm going to come to that in a minute, um, Iago begins to work on Othello's mind, and it's a, it's a horrible struggle to watch. Desdemona comes back and he says, if she be false, oh, then heaven mocks itself. I'll not believe it. He can't look at her and see her innocence without thinking there's something wrong with Iago. 
So all of his words are, are uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're among the most powerful expressions of love of any character in Shakespeare. And that's, I mean, I've read them all. At the end, remember when the, the plot is well along and Iago's convinced Othello that Desdemona's been false to him, um, he, he and um, Iago meet and Iago says he'll take care of Cassio. He, he thinks, Othello thinks Cassio's gonna be killed, that that's um, Desdemona's lover. And then he goes to the bedroom intending to take what in his mind is vengeance, okay? That it's getting rid of this whore. In fact, just in the scene before he calls her the whore, the whore of Venice, of Venice. He's bending over the bed. It's his act five, scene two, for those of you who have your book. And, and notice the legal language, the cause, that's the language of a courtroom. He bends over, there's a candle next to the bed line, or the bed, it's lit. Okay, and he says, he knows if he puts out that candle, he can relight it. But if he puts out her soul, so these are his words. Now remember the words, I've just picked out a few past, there's others. This is Othello bending over the woman he loves with this extraordinary love, and he's about to kill her because of all that's gone on with him. Othello over Desdemona, it is the cause, it is the cause, my soul. Let me not name it to you, you chase stars. It is the cause. You will not shed her blood, yet I'll not shed her blood, nor scar that whiter skin of hers than snow and smooth as monumental alabaster. Yet she must die, else she betray more men. Put out the light, and then put out the light. If I quench thee, thou flaming minister, I can thy former light restore. Light the candle again. Should I repent me? But once put out thy light, thou cunningest patter of excelling nature, I know not where is that Promethean heat that can thy light relume. When I have plucked the rose, I cannot give it vital growth again. It needs must wither. I'll smell it on the tree. God, it breaks my heart to just... He kisses her. He's, he's going to kill her. He kisses her. Oh, balmy breath that does almost persuade justice to break her sword. One more, one more, be thus when thou art dead, and I will kill thee and love thee after. It's the last thing he wants to do. He loves helplessly. I mean, he's helpless in the face of this. Um, one more, one more, be thus when thou art dead, and I will kill thee and love thee after. One more, and that's the last. So sweet was ne'er so fatal, I must weep. But there are cruel tears, the sorrows heavenly strikes where it doth love. She wakes. I'm going to come back to this moment. I just wanted to hear. My reason for reading is this. Because I just want to bring this home while we have a chance with Othello because it's, I don't think it's anywhere put as forward as clearly as it is here. A modern literary critic whose name is Bakhtin, Mikhail Bakhtin, is a part of a formalist school of criticism. The literary groups um, so admire the work that he's done in the last century. It is really extraordinary work. He argues that the canonic genres, lyric and tragedy and comedy, are inferior to the novel because he says, classically, those lyric, tragedy, and comedy are all put to verse. So the poet writing in them has to 
accommodate his language to the verse requirements. You just heard it here. Shakespeare's writing in blank verse. They're all measured. It's five beats a line. They're not rhyme. Sometimes they'll slip in rhyme. We saw that with the hell. Bakhtin's argument is that the modern novel is superior to the canonic genres, lyric, tragedy, particularly comedy, because it faithfully represents the actual words of real people. So the novel went, has gone beyond the lyric and the tragedy and comedy, and it's more open to the open-endedness of life. That's his argument, okay? So just hold on to that for a minute, okay? So the modern, you know from we'll, when we meet, or when we read um, Hawthorne, or if we read Huckleberry Finn, or Charles Dickens, or you can, it doesn't matter. Henry James, Joyce, it, it doesn't matter. You're going to find in the novel a language that's closer to the actual language of human beings, the language used when we speak. Huckleberry Finn is a good example because he's actually using the idiom of the South and the black and a kid. And so if we keep that in mind here, okay, what do we say of Shakespeare? Othello says, I'm rude of speech. I can't stress this enough. He's Moorish, he comes from a third world, undeveloped country. He has no education. He doesn't belong to the aristocracy, doesn't belong to an educated Venetian world. He's inarticulate, and yet he's put up your swords, thus the do, well, you know, rest them more. He, so is Shakespeare window dressing? Is he, what's the word I'm looking for when you, when you embellish something? Is because he has to meet these verse requirements? Is he, is he window dressing or, or is there something going on in poetry that lots of modern people miss? Just going back to our poetry thing for a second. Go ahead, Fred. Well, I, it's just, you know, I used to be of that school. You know, that poetry and trying to rhyme was a restriction to getting your ideas on paper, basically, until we started getting into some of the stuff. And I think if you read those lines, you can see, you can feel Othello's anguish. And I think part of it is the way it's structured, the form, and, and the music, if you will, the rhythm of it all. You, you at least I, I guess maybe I should say, I speak for myself, that you, you can't read that without feeling the agony that he's going through and wondering why can't he just open his eyes? <laughs> <laughs> and see what's Talk to what's her. really there. Ask her. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Uh, that would that would be yeah. my response. I, I think in a lot of the modern novels, you know, that 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 just the use of the daily language doesn't capture the emotion behind the the verbiage, like like the like the the, the rhythm and structure of the poetry does. How long did it take you to get to that point? Uh, <laughs> up until last year. We did that section, you know, when we talked about the forms mm -hmm. and all the different rhymes and lyrics and everything. And I think it was when we were going through that, I, it, it, it kind of just finally made sense to me. Because um, up, in, up until then, I just thought form was kind of a waste. Uh, but you can you can see as we get into some of these particular pieces where 
you know, I, I don't know if, if I had tried to write that by hand in a normal way, I don't think I had the vocabulary to capture that same emotion that and the music element. Remember, there's a musical element that that um, that affects the affective part of the soul. Remember, because good poetry will awaken feelings while it's showing us something. It's, I mean, that's one of the powers that poetry. Well, we talked about it in Chaucer, right? I mean, some of oh. the stories are they're disgusting. You know what's going on in some of the stories, but because it's because of the rhyme, it's impossible to read it without laughing. But if you read that without, well, maybe again it's me. But if I if I read some of those stories without without that poetry, yeah, you know I I'm going to walk away completely depressed. But when you when you're sitting there and it's rhyming every other line, it's just impossible to to not just chuckle over it all. Again. Yeah, yeah. Right, go ahead. I th I kind of disagree with you a little bit because I think poetry is much much more difficult to write and to understand. I think Fred's saying that. Language. Well, I think that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, he said it just took him longer. I mean, it's well, but I mean, uh, okay, maybe I misunderstood one of the first things you said. That. Uh, I, I think it's much more difficult. And I don't think it's better or worse. I think it's different. I mean, I am just, I don't get poetry. To me, it's mostly a waste of time. Um, and yet you've been here for four years now. I'm, by the way, I'm glad you've wasted so much time. I'm, I'd be really sorry if you had, if, if you had not wasted your time on this stuff. To me, to me it's, it's mostly a waste of time for, for poetry. Um, but it's much more difficult, I think, to do. And that's why there hasn't been very many Shakespeare's, but there's been a lot of good You're authors. speaking from experience writing yourself now, are you? You said it's much harder to do. Yes, yeah, much harder to do. And I've read a lot of Shakespeare, and I've read a lot of authors. No, I, my question was, I said, you're I speaking think. from, ex no, you'd be still, you're speaking from experience of having written a lot of poetry. I'm no, no, read. But, but it's, it's not difficult, because there's only a few good poets. Yeah, then, yeah, they're rare, always. Then there's a lot more, I think, good yeah. authors. Yeah, yeah. We've been saying that from the beginning. Remember when we did, remember, I, I want to, because I'm, I'm on the clock here tonight. Remember when we did Homer? Homer wrote, remember he didn't write either. This was, the whole Iliad and the Odyssey was sung. Nothing was written down. He wasn't reading from the book. This is by memory. He was delivering, creating the Iliad and the Odyssey, 8th century BC. Virgil, 1st century. Seven, eight centuries passed. Those of you who've done this, when we get to Dante, remember the opening of Dante. Dante's lost. He's being beaten back from the woods. He comes back and he hears this voice grown faint. From the time of Virgil, who's his guide, to Dante, 1,300 years. How rare is that? Okay. But I want to ask this question a different way. If does Othello? Could Othello even find words to express the depth of his feelings for Desdemona? If he had put his own words down on paper, would they come close to this? Absolutely not. I mean, Shakespeare's not going to, he doesn't know how people in war would speak. Sure he does. Sure he does. That's why he can do this. Well, I, d I doubt Shakespeare could write. Wait, here. Here's the point. <laughs> There's no way. Here. I don't think he can do it. Come on. Even if he tried. There's no way in which Othello could have written anything close to this. 
I want to even go farther. How conscious is, or let me go back to, to try to make this as ordinary as I can. Just hold on. I remember when Doc and I first met, She'd been stalking me, by the way. I just want to get this clear. <laughs> we were in the library. You, you, we were in the library. Bringing it up. I'm sorry. No, no, wait, wait. What was that about letting her hair down? I Who's stalking you? Boy, it's really. You guys are really sent. What a sense of humor! Suddenly, people get really sensitive. Here, hold on. I'm really comfortable, Captain. Oh, hold on. He's exemplifying the man in the novel he got. <laughs> we were in the library, and there are these library cards that are, you know, eight, seven by three or something. And I can remember writing notes to her. And I, I'm just imagine. I mean, I don't know when men, you know, sit down and they make their first efforts of trying to write. There was a guy at the rec who was trying to write a note to a girl that he was getting attached to, and he asked me to read it because he knew it was. I mean, it was funny to watch, only because I remember doing the same thing when we met. I remember writing these notes to her, and I, there was this feeling I couldn't get close to describe to her what I felt. I'm assuming most of the men in this room know that. If Othello, is, a, is Othello even aware of the depths of those feelings? The reason I'm saying this is it seems to me one of the great things that Shakespeare's doing is through language he's able to go to those depths that are beyond our reach. And he makes that clear with Othello. Othello says, I'm rude of speech. He can't speak these words. I mean, imagine the words that he would speak. They wouldn't get close to these sentiments. And yet, he's, he's making it possible for us to feel those depths of sentiments that he himself couldn't get to. He loves this woman profoundly. He's just been baptized. He's coming to the Christian world from being a more. So the poets, the great poets, help us to feel depths that nobody else can get to. We don't have the command of language. And to put it even differently, I'm trusting that everybody knows this. You know that without words, it's like we live in a dark cave. It's through words that we begin to throw light on our lives. Talk with somebody in a negotiation. Take words out of the picture and try to negotiate. It's going to be hard. Take words out of the picture and try to express your love for somebody. I mean, the affections you feel for somebody, you know. Shakespeare, through his poetry, is helping us to feel things and see things the characters themselves don't see, and very often we don't. So I just want to hold on to that. So here in this play, we're, we're being presented with a character whose love for this woman is extraordinary. And I don't want anybody to forget that he's a more, he says, I'm rude of speech, and yet he, he expresses these lines that some of which I read, that are far more powerful than almost probably any other, except maybe Anthony and Cleopatra, but, but even then they don't get close. This is extraordinary. If you read Shakespeare, you'd see it. So let me just put that out, okay? So in Othello, we're reading the story about this warrior who's come from a warrior world into a Venetian world in which the most valuable thing is the mind. Remember, I think I did this. Capitalism, did I do this? Capitalism comes from the word, the Latin, caput, the head. The basis of the commercial regime is capital. And by that, it's not meant just money, it's meant the resourcefulness of your mind. Yeah? Intellectual capital. 
Yeah, that's redundant. Yeah, but there's a point. Okay. If you take if you take the dominant qualities of a capitalistic regime, the commercial regime, because remember, the the principle of the regime is freedom. That we're no longer in a feudal world. We're in a regime in which each person um, is not being held back by virtue of his birth, whatever his abilities, whatever his willing to risk, his willingness to risk, he can make a better life for himself. That's the nature of the commercial regime. So the dominant characteristics are intellect, um, resourcefulness, risking. People who are willing to risk, who are resourceful, and who are intelligent. Now stop for a minute. What are the opposites of those intellectual virtues? Or ones that are rooted in the mind? It's more of a blind loyalty or spiritedness, right? The opposite? The opposite. I would say it's cunning, cheating. Okay. It's, it's Iago is where I'm going. Mm -hmm. If you take the greatest qualities, remember how important the intellect is in this world. And by the, remember, by the way, remember, the difference between an angel and a human is the body. Angels are intellectual. They have no bodies. They're all intellect, all intellect. When man loses connection with his heart and his body, he becomes demonic, like a devil. So if the great qualities of the commercial regime are resourcefulness and intelligence and creativity, risking, things like that, if you look at the opposite, cheating, cunning, fraud, things where you deceive, you can see something about the commercial regime. The very best things of it, and how it invites this evil that we're watching, okay? Now, go to, the, go to the beginning. I want to just quickly read through some passages and then come to that question that I asked earlier. Othello begins with Rodrigo saying, remember I've said from the beginning, whenever you read Shakespeare, the opening lines always give the play away. Always, always. And the opening scene. Um, the, remember, I know not why I'm so sad. Hamlet, who's there? Who's there? Do we know who's in front of us? Um, who's there can almost apply to this play as well as to Hamlet, because one of the questions is, do we really know who's there? Does anybody know Iago? And by the way, what's his, um, what's his, what do you call the tag, the night, the name tag? The, um, oh, that's Iago. Yeah, but no, what's the Greek word not for um, the tag name? I'm not getting it, but he's called Anastiago. Um, you almost can't read 30 lines in this play without coming across Iago. It's just hit, Shakespeare hits it. It's, it's over there. Honestiago, Honestiago, Honestiago. Um, why is honesty, what does honesty tell us about the commercial regime? Here, wait, let me put it differently. Here's the ancient virtues, the classical virtues. Prudence, fortitude, temperance, justice. Prudence, temperance, fortitude, justice. Those are all virtues associated with our will and acting, doing something, being temperate, being just, being prudent, being courageous, enduring, you know. The, the, the tag, 
that the, is honesty. What does that tell us about the commercial regime? What does it give away about this commercial regime? That's not. Huh? That's not. Yeah, but, yes. Dichotomy. Huh? Dichotomy. It's opposite of what you think. It can't function without honesty. Ghosts. Can you go somewhere with that, Doc? With it? Well, if you're not honest with your contracts, um, then your contract's not going to be worth anything. It seems you to me the very, yeah. On, you have the to very, depend on some, somebody's yeah. word. You, you have to rely on a person's honesty. And my question is, how susceptible does that make you to appearances? Because Othello keeps saying of Iago, honest, honest, honest. And we know from the beginning, right from the beginning, yeah. that he's anything but honest. Yeah. So we're watching people walk around in a world of appearances. Thing, I can trust this, he's honest. I mean, how, how often do you, on these television programs on TV, they, they deal with these frauds, or what do you call them, these... Huh? Cons. Yeah, and, and what's the other word? American greed and these scams and, you know, just huge scams that these people work on people, the way they take advantage of people in our world. Here's aren't aren't they viewing him as honest? Because in those, in those instances where he wants them to think he's honest, he's basically just telling them what they want to hear. hear. Yeah. And you automatically assume then that if somebody's telling you what you want to hear, that's an honest assessment yeah. of the situation. Yeah. And Yes, I couldn't agree more. And the other interesting thing is that it, it not only does that, but I'm thinking of the case when Ludovico comes to call Othello back to Venice and Cassio's going to replace him. And Othello's furious because he thinks that Cassio slept with Desdemona. And Iago goes, um, I can't tell you everything I know. but just. So he seems not to be doing something, but by not doing something, mm -hmm. He's actually saying more. Yeah, and he does that. He does that again and again and again. When it, when he begins, he says, "Was Cassio? Did Cassio know about this?" And Othello goes, "What?" And Iago goes, "Never mind." It's easy. Yeah, just by by not saying things, he often infers more. So he he manipulates people not only by telling them what they want by insinuating things without ever seeming to implicate himself. He's so cunning. Here's the beginning, here's the beginning. Tush, tush, never tell me, I take it much unkindly that thou, Iago, who has had my purse, as if the strings were thine, should know us of this. Rodrigo's been paying Iago to, to facilitate, promote this, Rodrigo's efforts to get to Desdemona, and he's paid him money. What does this tell us about the commercial regime? Anything's worth of anything price. You know, yeah, the worth of something is determined by your money. The proof of it is you've got my, you know. So once again, we're in a world in which money establishes the ethos, the way things are done. Now, Iago says very openly, Cassio got the promotion. He didn't. So the second thing we learn is um, Iago's motivated by, apparently, by envy. Remember when we looked at Dante, pride and envy were the two dominant characteristics of the commercial regime. Remember, the, the, remember, going back to St. Augustine and the city, remember the city comes into existence when man leaves God, that the dominant characteristics of the city will always be pride, envy, trying to get better, um, not letting have somebody more than what you have. Now, once, once this gets straightened out, 
Iago sets in motion this traps or this plot, and he, they go to wake up Brabantio to tell him, inform him that his daughter's been has eloped. She's married at that. Here are the words. These are crucial because these give away the tragic side now in Venice. Rodrigo's screaming, um, you know, something's happened. This black man has walked away with this white sheep and Brabantio says, what, what tellest thou me of robbing? This is Venice. My house is not a grange. Most great Brabantio and simple and pure soul I come to you. Zound, sir, this is Iago. You are one of those that will not serve God if the devil bid you. Because we come to do you service and you think we're ruffians, you'll have your daughter covered with a Barbary horse. It's dark moor. Mm -hmm. You'll have your nephews neigh to you, these animals. You'll have your coursers for cousins. That is, you'll demean everything. Brabantio, what profane wretch art thou? Brabantio's hated Rodrigo. He's wanted to keep her away from the... Um, Rodrigo goes on and talks about what had just happened, and then Brabantio says, Strike the tinder hoe, give me a taper, call up my people. This accident is not unlike my dream. Belief of it oppresses me already. Light, I say light. This is where they go off to get Othello, and it'll lead to this conf confrontation I, you know, I read about a minute ago. What do these lines tell us about Venice? What, so Bra um, Rodrigo says, a robbery has taken place. Brabantio says, what tellest me... In Robbie, this is Venice. My house is not a grange. Most great Brabantio and simple and pure soul I come to you. Sound, you are one of those that will not serve God if the devil bids you. It goes on. And then down below, he says, strike the tinder, give me a taper, call my people. This accident is not unlike my dream. Belief of it oppresses me already. What do these things tell us about Venice? The normal city. The is a dollar time. It's unstable. Hmm? It's unstable. It, you know, describe it. It's its structure is built on things that are not solid, so they're easily eroded. So, like you know, you're like in in the case of Desdemona's father. I mean, he has this. He has these beliefs about what is what is true in Venice, but he's easily convinced that that it's there's something amiss because those foundations are built on things that you you can't look through and see what the real truth of the situation is. Kind of like what I think what was going on with the fellow and Desdemona at the end. He had this great love for her, but he couldn't he couldn't see through all this shrapnel that yeah. Iago had put up in front of him to, to really realize that this whole situation was totally fabricated. I think one of the qualities that emerges here is that, um, I mean, I'd qualify it just one way, Fred, is that according to Rubancio, this is a ration regime. These things don't, that is the year round, he denies that anything like that could happen. This is Venice. That is, Venice is, this is so important because remember we saw in Merchant, that Venice is a place of law and contracts. That's the very nature of it. Um, Brabantio say, is saying, basically, this is a city of law. This is not a grange. These things don't happen. They, they don't happen here. 
So for him to learn that this has happened strikes at the very foundation of his beliefs. And it so strikes him that he says, Iago says, Zouncer, you are one of those that will not serve God if the devil bids you. If somebody you don't like happens to tell you the truth, stop and think about it. This is sort of amazing. If somebody you don't like happens to say the truth to you, how likely will you hear it? Not much. <laughs> Truly, isn't that right? And what's, what governs Venice is that the people, remember, this is crucial to what Shakespeare's doing. This is the modern city. It's based on law and order. Religion is gone. God is gone from this world. These are people who are Catholics. They're not practicing their faith. We know that. This is a world without God. It's, it's the, modern, the Enlightenment modern regime based on the intellect. It's a place of law and order. So his first response is, these things don't happen here. I mean, it, sh it shakes his world. And then he says, or Iago says to him, you're one of those that will not serve you if the devil bid you. How open will people be to people they don't like, to things they say to people they don't like? They won't be at all. But what if God happens to speak through the people we don't like? How willingly will we hear them? This is the city of, this is the modern city of Hawthorne, of, of uh, Melville, of Dostoevsky when we get there. This is the rational city, the enlightenment city. It's man's attempt to live without God. And that means um, law and order and control will have this super place. And the interesting thing is he says, strike up the tinder gives me a taper, call up my people. This accent, it's not unlike my dream. He had intuitions of it. If this had not happened, how likely would he have been to listen to his own dream? Not at all. This is the rational city. It's control, profit. This is what I do to get here. When things break into that world, the first thing you do is deny them, dismiss them, oppose them. And if, it, if we see this as the respectable city, it's the city of law and order, how likely is it that anybody who's not respectable will be listened to if God happens to be working through those people? It's not going to happen, tattooers, but you know, I mean, what name it in our modern world. So immediately we're, we're, we're shown a city, the modern city, the city given to law and order, and something happening that involves this outsider who comes into this world, he's black, he's a warrior type, and it's, it's um, introducing an element of confusion and uncertainty in the city. And here, I want to quickly go to the, towards the end, because um, I want to be careful of our time. They get to Cyprus, and it's in Cyprus that this whole underworld, this world that the Venetians do not want to see, this is the city in which they have complete control. There's no God. So if you take God out of the picture, what's one of the things that you cannot see? Evil. Truly. If you're in a respectable world and you've got control of everything and there's no God around, I mean, one of the things you're not going to be willing to admit is evil. So here's the irony. They get to Cyrus. This is the great irony. Okay, let me... Um, they get to... Cyprus, what's the first thing Othello does? He sets guard. They get there, and Othello says to Cassio, um, 
set guard, and Cassio says, I've already taken care of it, and he sets, um, he and Iago set the guard that night. Now, I'm, I'm just wondering how many of you have read this, because I know we did this one, and I'm not sure all of you have read it now, so I'm not sure, but what's the irony at this point? He sets guard. The Turks, if they say it, on the way the Turks were defeated by the ocean, the, the, the ocean swamped them. And they all said, we're free. Um, so, and it's interesting, watch this. The Christians got through. The Turks didn't. It's almost as if um, Christianity is more in tune with nature, or nature's more in tune with it. The enemy's done away with. There's no need. Othello's performing an absolutely perfunctory task. What's the irony? Where are they looking? Well, can you have doubling with cities? <laughs> <laughs> can you flesh? I'm not sure that you want to flesh well, that well, up. Well, yeah, your wife. <laughs> isn't Cyprus the reflection of what is really wrong with Venice that people don't see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're kind of we're kind of we're kind of face to face with it in right. Cyprus, but right. it's, but it's going on in Venice. They just don't right. realize right. it. Right. One of the ironies here is that they're looking out to sea. Yeah. Well, they're instead of inside. Yeah, they're looking out. Where should they be looking? Where's the evil going to come? Within. From within. And two two things happen here. Just hold on. Watch this, because this this is. Remember what I said a minute ago about the respectable, the, the city of law and order, of dignity and respectability. When Cassie goes bad, how does he go bad? Drinking too much. At the end, when things begin to fall apart and Bianca comes in, Iago's words are whore, prostitute. Desdemona is called a prostitute. What are the great evils in this world? Drinking, prostitution. What's the real evil? Iago, sinister. No, I really think how, how big a problem. Seriously, how big a problem is drinking or prostitution? I mean, Cassio goes to the in the face of this other thing that's going on that none of them can see. Yeah, that's they're quick to point their fingers morally at Cassio and Bianca, the prostitute. Because it's outwardly, you can see. It. Because it, it confirms it. their own respectability. Look how good I am, mm -hmm. and this evil's going on. That is, they live in this sort of self-righteous, respectable world. They're not dealing with what's going on inside of them. Their own, their stupid innocence. Like the Pharisees. It's true. It's just so true. So one of the ironies here at this moment, and it's a turning point, they've arrived at Cyprus. The first thing that, that Othello does is what he should do. Sets guard. What's the irony? The evil's at work right under their noses, and nobody can see it. They're all looking out. So here, quick. So, um, so Othello demotes Cassio because he's in this brawl from getting drunk. He wants to. He's Iago encourages him to go see the Desdemona, and he does. And and then this is what happens. Um, and watch how this unfolds. This is stunning. If you guys haven't read Othello, you should read it the next week. It's, you know, it's a short, you really should. It's, it's a stunning play. 
Um, Othello has just said, but Desdemona comes and presses him for, um, for Cassius, for sake. He says, prithee no more, let him come when he will, I will deny thee nothing. The love of this man is extraordinary. We've seen this lines. Um, and he says, um, excellent, ex another one, I should have read it. She, she said, this is just dismissing me, I mean it, I, she, take me seriously here. And he, and he says, excellent wretch, when she leaves, perdition catch my soul, but I do love thee, and when I love thee not, chaos is come again. Extraordinary words. Excellent wretch, perdition catch my soul, but I do love thee. And when I love thee not, chaos is come again. Now, Iago, my noble lord, what dost thou say? Did Michael Cassio, when you wooed my lady, know of your love? He did, from first to last. Why did you ask? But for a satisfaction of my thought, no further. Why have I thought? That's it. A thought is insinuated into Othello's head. Now watch what happens. From that point on, you can't read two lines without having thought or one of its cognates, thinking, knowing, occur in line. Um, why have I thought he had, I did not think he had been acquainted with her? Oh, yes, between us very often. Indeed, indeed, I, indeed. Discernest thou anything in that? Is he not honest? Honest, my lord? Honest? I, honest. My lord, for aught I know, what dost thou think? Think, my lord, think, my lord. By heaven, he echoes me. Is there some monster in his thought? It goes on. Thought, 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 again and again. Um, as thou ruminate, give me, my, give me the worst of thy thoughts, the worst of thy words. Good my lord, pardon me. I, though I am bound to every action of duty, I am not bound to that all slaves are free to. I don't have to tell you what's in my knowing me. I mean, all he's doing is, is making it harder for, for Othello to deny him. Um, dost thou conjure us again thy friend, Iago, if thou best thinkest him wrong and makest his ear a stranger to thy thoughts? It'll go on like that. Why such importance to thought? I'm assuming everybody's getting this. Why is this, why is this a define, why is this a trouble to Venice? What's the problem here? Why is this? Thinkest that, thinkest, he's, then he gets to a point of saying, you better prove this to me or I'm going to kill you. You set these motions, these doubts in my mind about my wife, mm -hmm. you better prove it. Because finally he comes to himself. He's really, he's, he's really being pressed. He says, why, why is this? Thinkest thou that I'll make a life of jealousy to follow still the changes of the moon with fresh suspicions? No. To be once in doubt is once to be resolved. Soon as I have a doubt, what, this is a soldier. Soon as I have a doubt, I'll answer it. Get it out of the way. How easy is that? To be once in doubt is once to be resolved. Exchange me for a goat when I shall turn the business of my soul to such exuffocate and blown surmises matching this inference. Tis not to make me jealous to say my wife is fair, feeds well, loves company, free of speech, sings, as she does all those things. Where virtue is, these are more virtuous. Nor for my own weak merits will I draw the smallest fear or doubt of her revolt, for she has eyes and chose me. No, Iago. I'll see before I doubt when I doubt prove, and on the proof there is no more. Away at once with love or justice. Now, he'll ask for proof and, proof and threaten him. Now, here's crucial, and we're going to quit in just a couple of minutes. This is crucial. He says, prove to me or die. So, in the commercial regime, you've got a man from another world and Iago working on him, planting 
thoughts, suspicions in his head. So Agio is working at a level of thought, dealing with a man who's never had to deal with anything but actions, swords, fighting, and nobody, nobody could withstand him. He's such a brave man. He's a warrior. This is what he's done. He says, prove it. So two proofs are going to come into this. And I'm going to leave with this and then ask my question, and then we'll pick it up at the beginning of next week. Iago's first proof, he says, you want proof? I'll give it to you. One night, um, Cassio and I were sleeping because they're soldiers. They're bunking in the same room. They were in the same bed together. Cassio, this is Iago, Cassio put his leg over mine, and in his sleep was murmuring about making love to Desdemona, and he wanted to kiss her, and he kisses Iago. That's his proof. That's hearsay. Good. So, okay, what's okay? So what's what's wrong? It is. What's wrong? It's hearsay. What's wrong? But it's purely intellect. It's easily redirected. Explain that. Well, because everything is reference to something. Everything, everything is relative to something, and you change that that something, and it and it takes the whole train of thought in a totally different direction. Whereas if that's rooted in something like faith where you know you, you have you have something that's relative to something that's not moving it's easier to 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 stay with what you believe than it is if you got if everything that you're thinking about is truly mental and it's built on a set of assumptions and somebody changes those assumptions for you the whole thing falls apart what does that say about reason before we go any farther? Well, I, I just, I just think, you, I, I think you can't have, you can't have reason alone, and and not be constantly subject to change, or uncertainty. There has to be, there has to be yeah. something. Because the only reason that you can under, understand that a fellow did what he did was he never really knew Desdemona. I mean, what he was in love with was were some of her attributes, but he never really understood the true soul of the woman, otherwise he would never have believed any of this stuff. Or, yeah, let me, I'm gonna say, let me offer another line, Fred, that, just for a second to say that his love, by the way, I have the same thing, if you look at, if you look at the long description he gives of why he fell in love with her when he told Desdemona all these adventures and he says she fell in love with me and did pity him and he did pity her, She's caught up with his romance tales. It's outside the Venetian world. He he tells her these tales of all these adventures with the Octopropomide, these strange creatures with, you know, and she fell in love with his strangeness. It's it's like there's this hunger for something beyond reason that reason can't satisfy. But I'm gonna I'm gonna say just for the sake of argument for a sec that his love for her was genuine. But what we find here, or at least present this as a, another option, is that in a, in a world in which reason is given the value that it is, um, that once you cast a doubt on it, I mean, along the lines that you speak, um, that if you, if you place your value entirely on reason and something calls it into question, it renders you helpless. Wait a second, Mark. Just, um, and the interesting thing here is he asks for proof. This is where I'm going to go, wait if you can. He asks for proof, and the proof that 
Cassio gives him constitutes anything but proof. I mean, your 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 term. What was it? A, hearsay. hearsay. Yeah. But here, let me go because I want to go to this one other point before we close. In what happens is you remember that in the next scene, because Othello gets so worked up, he's sweating. Desdemona comes to him and pulls out a hanky and wipes his brow and then drops it. That's the hanky his mom gave him, was given to a, by a maid, and he associates it with superstitious, it's talismanic, with superstitious powers. I hope I do, I don't want to forget this, and my mind is going. Hold on to that notion of superstition for a second. Amelia gives that to Cassio, and Cassio plots it in Cassio's, or I mean, Iago plants it in Cassius's room, and Cassio gives it to Bianca. Now, Othello comes to, or Iago comes to Othello and says, I've got more proof, come see. Um, and what he'll do is stage a play. He'll say, watch what happens with Cassio and Bianca. Iago goes to him, and Cassio's talking about Bianca, having given the Yankee to her, and Othello thinks he's talking about Desdemona, making love, sleeping with her, playing with her because he has no serious, it's an, a man taking advantage of a woman sexually again. And it, what it does is um, put Othello beyond himself. I mean, he just completely loses it because he thinks it's proof. Now, I've got a couple of questions here before we leave because I promised I was, gonna get, I was not going to be late tonight. A couple of questions here. In the rational regime, this rationalistic regime that's based on reason, um, what's the matter with it? Othello wants proof. It's an appeal to reason. Cassio seems to give him proof, or I mean Iago with this, what um, Valerie's called the... Hearsay. Sorry, hearsay. And then to confirm it, he puts on this play. So Iago is doing what Shakespeare's doing. He's putting on a play, but he's also interpreting it as he does and turning it to mean what he wants it to mean. Think about literary critics who simply take a work and make it mean whatever they want. Why this need for proof, I'm not going to answer it. We're like, why this need for, wait, so major questions. Why are the men in Venice so light? To care of from last week. What's going on that makes men so cavalier and innocent? And here in Othello, we see all these men innocent again. What makes them so light, so cavalier, so naive? What is it about this commercial regime that invites this evil that it's so widespread because there's nobody who's not man manipulated by Iago? Why this need for proof for the rational regime when the proof doesn't constitute a proof? What, what does it tell us about the rational regime and the way it allows evil to, to go to work? And if, if that isn't concrete in itself, take a look at our regime today. We, the, the corruption, the depravity is widespread. Um, porn, the, the biggest piece of evidence to me is abortion. The, the, the numbers of aborted children since Roe are in the hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions. It's the biggest holocaust in history. We, we think of ourselves as being the most educated people in the world, the best, the most virtuous, the most educated, and right under, right in front of us um, is taking place, and we condemn the Holocaust last century. Absolutely condemn it.
and a Holocaust is taking place in front of us because of what we've done with reason. I hope that's clear. The laws and the books giving women these rights are a work of reason. So what is Shakespeare showing us about the rational regime? It, it's, it's understanding of proofs and susceptibility to evil. What's going on? And behind it all is this likeness of men, the importance of women, and in this case, how vulnerable they are. Desdemona's going to die. Next week, I want to start with Anthony Cleopatra. What I'd like to do next week, I, I'm going to go to the end of Othello, because all of you, I thought you'd all lose off of me, but it's pretty clear that I'm going to go to the end of Othello, and I'll read the, I'm going to read the last speech where Othello's over, her bending over, and an exchange takes place between the two of them. And a, a Desdemona's going to seem to die, and she's going to seem to come back from death. I want to look at that scene with you guys to see what's going on and then try to give us some time to answer these questions, okay? This is our regime, what Shakespeare showing us about it, okay? Notice the Oh, thank you, David. Oh, can you guys remember to pay for the books if you bring bring it next week? Glad to, glad to get it next week. We charge compound interest daily, hourly. Oh, the $10 Yeah. Right. I got all the money. No, Okay, I've got the ten. Here we go. Reason is one-dimensional. What does that mean? Well, you know what that means. I don't explain. It means in life there's more things than one dimension. Yeah, going on. Yeah. I mean. Oh, oh. this is for the Merlin Cathedral from us. Thank you. I've got to buy this one. Oh, God. Okay.